letter of 1 Peter. We've been out of this passage now for a couple of weeks. We looked, as you know, last week at 1 Thessalonians 4 to consider just briefly the idea of our hope in Christ that when He returns, we will meet the Lord in the air and forever be with the Lord. We will forever be with Him bodily. We will forever be with Him in His presence and glories and wonders that we can only imagine and think about now. But we will know by sight. We will know in reality then. We'll be looking this morning again at verses 4 through 5. This, this section, verses 4 through 10, is actually one section. It should be taken together, but we're looking at spending a little bit of extra time on these first two verses, verse 4 and 5, who really establish for us the principle out of which everything else is built. And the remainder of the letter, really, of 1 Peter. And, and he, Peter takes us immediately after these wonderful declarations of our hope in Christ, the exhortations that flow out of that doctrine. He now brings us into another establishment of doctrinal truth, of realities of what it means to be in Christ that help us to understand the, the nature of our existence in this world, the nature of our relationship to this world, and the foundation then of our hope. It is a defining purpose for us to belong to Christ and to be, as he'll say in this passage, living stones. And though he doesn't use the word here, Peter is giving in his own unique way, building on the Old Testament foundation of the temple, he's giving a picture of the church, of the doctrine of the church. And to be a part of the church is to be a a part of the most privileged institution and group of people on the face of the planet Earth. It's more than an institution, as we know. It's a living organism. We read about it. We sung about it. It is a living body of believers who encompass within themselves by God's sovereign purpose the life of the Spirit, the very life of Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus Christ. And we are, as the church on earth, the centerpiece of God's eternal purpose in Christ Jesus. We are the centerpiece of God's eternal purpose in Christ Jesus. We are the main focus of His work in this world for His own glory. All else in this world will pass away. Everything that we know in this creation will come to an end. It will be destroyed. But the one thing that will not come to an end but will endure for eternity is the church. The people of God will forever stand as a reflection of God's glory and a trophy of God's grace. It's the only thing really that matters, then, ultimately, in terms of God's work in this world. Now, when we do a membership class, we begin with a doctrine of the church. And one, one quote that I read, I'm going to read to you now, that I think helps unfold some of the different aspects of this glory. The quote is from Mark Dever's book, The Church, uh, an introduction to the doctrine of the church. Now, it's somewhat extended, but just follow along with me. The doctrine of the church is of the utmost importance. It is the most visible part of Christian theology, and it is vitally connected with every other part. Christ's work is the church's foundation. Christ's work continues in the church. The fullness of the mystery of God and redemption is disclosed among His people. 
As John Stott said, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. The church should be regarded as important to Christians because of its importance to Christ. Christ founded the church, purchased it with his blood, and intimately identifies himself with it. The church is the body of Christ, the dwelling place of the Spirit, and the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. Finally, the church is God's instrument for bringing both the gospel to the nations and a great host of redeemed humanity to himself. Together, individuals and churches will go, disciple, baptize, teach to obey, love, remember, and commemorate his substitutionary death with the bread and the cup. Every earthly pilgrim ought faithfully to love Jesus Christ the Lord, the bridegroom of that church, and also the church himself, his bride. Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christians living together in local congregations make the gospel visible. The church is the gospel made visible. End quote. And that is exactly true, and that is a reality that is being emphasized here by Peter in our passage this morning. The church is the visible expression of the fruit of Christ's death, his resurrection, and his ascension. It's the visible fruit of God's faithfulness. It's the visible fruit of God's glory is manifest in Christ. To be a part of the church is to be a part of the most eternally privileged people in all of the earth. It's not just where we gather because we happen to be Christians on Sunday morning. It is the centerpiece of God's working and God's glory in His Son. Think about this. God loves the church. He loves the church. God has redeemed the church. God has given us His promises. He's given us His Son. He's given us His Spirit. And He holds up the church, as we looked last week before, all of the angelic realm as a picture of His manifold glory in Jesus Christ. You here and us here in this room and every believer gathered together is God's display of His eternal love and glory and wisdom in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the church. And it's important for us to know that. And it's important for the readers of Peter's letter originally to know that. And for us who are the fruit, though separated by centuries of the same gospel of Jesus Christ, to know this. To know that while we are the treasured possession of God in the Son, we are at the same time the abhorrence of the world. Loved by God, hated by the world. Precious to God, to be discarded by the world. And we would expect that because that is exactly how it was with the Son himself in flesh, Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. A slave is not above his master. There's no reason for you to expect as my people anything different from the world than what I myself experienced by the world, and that is rejection. And so in this sense, Christ's life becomes then the pattern for the church, for the believers, all believers. And Peter himself will make that statement in verse 21 of chapter 2. He says, you have been called for this purpose. 
this suffering. Since Christ also has suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And so that's really then the foundation of the whole doctrine, not only of the church, but of Peter's letter. You are in Christ. You have received his salvation. You have a hope that is eternal, unshakable, and certain through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You live in this world in union with Christ. And you live in this world as his representatives, suffering as well the ridicule of the world, but holding strongly to the promises of the future that we have in him. So Peter is writing to encourage us, to embolden us, and to ensure us that as we share in the life of Christ, so we will share in his suffering. But as we share in his suffering, we also are confirmed that we are the centerpiece of God's loving work in this world, a part of the church that he has established in Christ, and that we have the certainty of a future glory that will not be taken away. And so Peter does this beginning by reminding us of our privileged distinction in Christ. So let me read for us just verses 4 and 5, and then we'll, we'll be reminded of what we looked at a couple weeks ago and, and move forward. Verse, verse 4, Peter says this, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, last week we looked at the privileged distinction in having a right view and a love for Christ. In other words, by God's grace, by having been born again, as he says in verse beginning of the letter, that we've been born again by the great mercy of God the Father, To a living hope, we've been born again through the imperishable seed of the word. We have received life. We have the privileged distinction in that to have a right view of God in Christ. And and yet, as was mentioned, this commitment to Christ, this identification with Christ, brings us into conflict with an unbelieving world, even as it did Christ himself. What is precious to God is, in verse 4, rejected by men. And we noted that this is the ultimate fruit of what was begun in the garden. In Genesis 3.15, God, in laying out the consequences of their sin, said to Satan that he will bruise the seed of the woman on the heel But this seed of the woman is ultimately going to crush Satan on the head. And in doing that, there are two lines in the idea of a seed established. Two spiritual realities in this world. Those who are of the seed of Satan, the spiritual offspring of Satan, as it were. And those who would be the spiritual offspring of the grace of God. Identified there as the seed of the woman. And these two spiritual realities have been in conflict then since the Garden of Eden. And the ultimate demonstration of this conflict isn't so much what has come on the people of God by living in this world, but what has come upon God himself in the person of the Son in being rejected by men and sent to the cross. As I reminded you, one of my 
quote, favorite quotes from John Owen is, sin always aims at the utmost. Sin is never satisfied with partial satisfaction. It always aims to its ultimate end. And its ultimate end is the destruction of God. It is to be absolutely independent of God. And so the, the opportunity arising with the appearance of Christ in the flesh... Men rejected him, his nation rejected him, and he was put to death on a cross. And so this rejection by men of Christ, of the living, who identified here as the living stone, is the ultimate expression of man's heart toward God himself. And it reveals the very base and deepest level of the heart's desire. And he, and he captures that in this language of choice and precious in the sight of God. And by doing that, he's identifying what is actually valuable, what is worthy, what is truly to be treasured. So when Christ came, he was not to be treasured. He was not loved. He was not adored by the world. But in God's eyes, he was. He was choice. He was precious. He was the beloved son. And though the world rejected him and does reject him, Ultimately, everyone will have the same opinion, as we noted. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's rejected by men, choice and precious in the sight of God, and one day that will be the universal acknowledgement that he is, in fact, the Lord. Sufficient authoritative and glorious. And then he says then that we, having identified that we are a part of what God considers choice and precious, namely his son, that we are in his son, he he expands on this in verse 5 and he says, you as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. We as living stones have come to what he identified in verse 4 as the living stone of Christ. And the connection here is then that we stand as the people of God in union with Jesus Christ. His life is flowing through our veins. And we noted that the the idea of stone here picks up on the imagery of a temple, of the temple building, the dwelling place of God. And that's made clear in the rest of the passage. Well, first of all, through the idea of spiritual house, of a priesthood and sacrifices. He says in verse 6 that he lays in Zion, where the temple lay a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He says the same thing in verse 7. So he's building here then on the imagery of the temple. The imagery of the temple. And he's saying Christ is of this temple in imagery, the cornerstone, the chief stone. He is the stone out of which every other stone derives its life, derives its meaning, derives its purpose. He is the living stone. We are living stones. And the picture of living here points us back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just read to you one verse in Acts chapter 4. It's by way of review. He says this, that he is the stone which has been rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. 
This comes after his identification of Jesus Christ as the one whom you crucified, he says in verse 10, but God raised from the dead. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he is authenticated as the centerpiece of God's work of redemption, and he is the one in whom all of his people find their life and identity. So as the resurrected Lord, Christ then went to the right hand of the Father, At the right hand of the Father, he received the promise of God and he sent forth the Holy Spirit. Verse 33, this is on the day of Pentecost in Peter's sermon. He says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has both poured out forth this which you both see and hear, namely the presence of the Holy Spirit that had come upon God's people and it was there that he established the church. And so as living stones in Christ, the resurrected Lord, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, we share in his life, this intimate life. So our life is bound up then with Christ. In John chapter 6, just one passage here by way of reminder, he says, As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the Father ate and died, He who eats this bread will live forever. Will live forever. In union with Christ then, we as the church of God, as the people of God, participate in his life. We have fellowship with him in the most intimate way. And we are growing, as he said in verse 2, in respect to salvation. So Christ is the head or the chief cornerstone from whom every other regenerate believer draws his life. And this is what it means to be in Christ and to be a spiritual house she identifies in verse 5. It is spiritual because, as we read this morning in Ephesians 2, we are the habitation of the Holy Spirit. He uniquely dwells among us in a way that he does in no other place on this earth. He dwells within his people. And so this idea of being a spiritual house then is really the fruit of that promise of the new covenant, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember when John said, I will baptize you in water, Jesus, but one is coming, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And that means then to be immersed into Christ, to be immersed into his life, among other things, to be immersed into his life, to be immersed into his redemption, to be immersed into him in a way that we are called the body of Christ. He says in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so then to be his house is to be the temple of God. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? That's an incredible thought, an incredible reality that we are, by God's design, where he has chosen to reveal and inhabit his people and reveal himself to this world. We are a spiritual house because we are the habitation of the Holy Spirit and we are a spiritual house in this sense that God's work is no longer centered on the physical location of Jerusalem and the physical temple building 
But in, again, the people of God. You'll remember what he said to the woman in John chapter 4, that no longer in this place or that place shall God's people worship him. Those things are done away with. Now God seeks only true worshipers in spirit and truth and those who then are united to his son. Now notice here, just quickly by review, that he says here that we are a spiritual house, a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. We are spiritual as the dwelling place of God, but we are a house singular. He doesn't say houses, but we are a house. And the singularity here comes because of our union to the person of Christ, to Christ. And so the point here then is that there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. It is foreign to the gospel and to salvation that there would be some individual Christians just running around living unto themselves and for themselves. While each must come to Christ individually, you must personally believe, you must personally place your faith in Christ, you must personally receive the gospel, you must personally understand your sin and the grace that is in Christ. While that is true, salvation is not simply your personal experience. It's not simply for you to go and to live for yourself in this world. It is to be saved as unto the people of God, the body of Jesus Christ. You are, you are in salvation, immersed into a community of believers by the Holy Spirit. You are then the people of God. And this idea of house then, reflecting the Old Testament temple, is to say that it is an orderly house. You remember at the beginning of the letter, Peter said that he's writing to those who reside as aliens who are scattered abroad in different uh, cities around the ancient world. He, they are scattered stones in the sense of they, as the people of God, are scattered because of persecution. They're scattered throughout these different lands. But, they are, but the imagery here is of a singular people. And this would have been particularly then encouraging to them because though they are scattered into these different lands because of persecution, he's saying, yet you are a house. You are the singular people of God in whom God indwells and is working. So the imagery Peter uses to describe them is not of a heap of stones just scattered in a field or gathered together in a field or a bunch of stones loosely scattered around the ground, but you are stones that are part of a building that God is building. Uniquely shaped and perfectly placed by by divine sovereignty into his house in the temple. Your, Your being here this morning is not a random act. It is by God's specific design the place where he has put you to be a functioning and living member of his people. To serve him and to be a part of what he is building. And he said then lastly here then that this is a spiritual house that is being built up. That is being built up. As I mentioned before, this church then is the focus of God's work in this world. And Christ himself guaranteed that his church is unassailable by any forces of this world, even by Satan himself. Let me remind you of Jesus' words to Peter. He says in Matthew 16, he says this. You remember, 
Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Nothing can destroy my work of building my church for which I died and for which I will rise and for which I send my spirit and for which I will return and gather to myself. That's the church of God. And when he says that, he speaks as the one who alone could guarantee that. Remember how he ends the gospel. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So to be a part of the church is to be a part of something that God himself is building, that Christ himself is building, and that cannot be destroyed. It is unthreatened by this world, even by Satan himself. And again, this is a great encouragement to us. Rejected by men, our Savior rejected by men, our Lord rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. We, belonging to Christ, rejected by men, ridiculed and maligned by men like our Savior, are yet choice and precious to God because we're in His Son. This is, again, the only thing in this world that you can be a part of and assured of victory is the church. Everything else, our own nation will fall, our lives will end, everything else will come to nothing. This very age of, or this very existence of the earth as we know it now will be destroyed. And yet, again, the church will remain. It is being built up by God and it will stand. John says this, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. He lives forever. Everything will pass away. Everything. But the church will stand. And how is it being built? It's being built as each stone is added and as each individual stone grows more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now look at the rest of verse 5. You are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the third privilege distinction here is our motive and privileges of worship. He says, for a holy priesthood. He uses language here that is expressing purpose. Expressing purpose. So the idea is this, that God is building the spiritual house for the purpose that we would be a holy priesthood. This is the end to which we are being built and God is doing his work in this world to be a holy priesthood in this world. And this, by the way, is the great doctrine that was rescued in the Reformation, the priesthood of all believers. That each person in Christ has access, the same access to God in Christ, has the same privileges as every other believer in Christ. There isn't this uh, division between the sacred and the secular in terms of our relationship to God. They were all a, a holy priesthood. And what does he mean by this? Well, let me just 
give an overview here. Within the Old Covenant, the priesthood were descendants of Aaron, who was from the tribe of Levi. And it was established at the time of the tabernacle, the giving of the law, and God's redemption of Israel for the first time as a nation when he delivered them from Egypt. Remember, he delivered them out. At that time, they had no temple before that. They had no written word even before that. They were simply those wandering people who held on to the promise of God. But now he's delivered and they are a nation and he calls them out by this great act of redemption of Israel. He calls them to Mount Sinai and he establishes there the law and the temple and the priesthood. This was a, a tremendous, tremendous turning point, advancement in the life of the nation of God's people. We turn to Exodus 28. He says this. Let me just turn there. He says then, in this establishment of the priesthood, he says, I bring you near to myself, Aaron, your brother, or bring near to yourself, Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priest to me. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and beauty. And he goes on and begins to describe the dress of the priest. The tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, the law, the sacrifices were all pointing to or regulating one great reality, and that was that God was now dwelling among his people as he had never done before. He established his presence with his people. He established a particular place of worship eventually, and he prescribed a specific manner of worship by which his people maintained fellowship. And the most amazing part of this, again, is the fact that God had established his presence with his people. He says in Exodus 25, 8, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. That was the great glory of God's covenant with his people. That he would dwell among them. A holy God among a sinful people. I mean, this would be impossible in itself. But the priesthood is an expression of God's ordinance to his people. Of God's provision for his people to maintain their fellowship with him as a sinful nation. As a sinful nation. So one of the main roles, I'm going to identify two of the priesthood then, was this. They had distinct roles as mediators. Distinct role as mediators. What did they mediate? They mediated the knowledge of God as teachers. This was epitomized in the ministry of Ezra. If you'll remember, who was a priest of God. And it said he set his heart to study the law of God and to practices and to teach his ordinances in Israel. This was the ultimate epitomized role of the priest, is that they were to know the law of God, they were to teach the law of God, and they were to demonstrate the law of God in their lives as faithful followers of Yahweh, of God. They were to be the mediators then of the knowledge of God. They were to be the mediators of the sacrifice of the temple which the priest did daily. So the routine of the temple, of the sacrifice was that if you were an Israelite, you came to the temple, you brought your sacrifice. You put your hand on the animal, symbolizing the transference of your sin. You killed the animal as the worshiper. And then the priest took that animal from you and he went through the prescriptions of the sacrifice for that particular sacrifice. 
And in that way, then, they mediated the sacrifices of God for, or the, uh, for the, of the people of God for God. They, they were the ones who took those sacrifices and, in essence, made, made them the cleansing reality that they were designed to be for the worshiper who brought them. And then there was the high priest who once a year on the Day of Atonement entered into the most inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies of the temple, and made sacrifices for the nation. And both the the priest and the high priest first were cleansed by sacrifice, and then they would end up, or they would offer up the sacrifice of the people before God. So they were mediators of the knowledge of God, and then they were mediators of the sacrifices of the temple. And then outside of the specific role of priest, there was the nation of Israel who was also collectively referred to as a priesthood. Let me just quote it for you here out of Exodus 19.6. He says this, Exodus 19.6. You shall be, well, let me read verse 5. Now, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. And so that's significant that here he's identifying the entire nation, not merely a chosen group out of the nation to be his priest before God. And ultimately, the prophets looked forward then to a time when each individual of the nation would have the role of priest. Isaiah 61, 6. But you will be called the priest of the Lord, and you will be spoken of as ministers of our God. So the priests had a role as mediators. They also had a distinct privilege in the nearness of God, in being near to God. And that really is the greatest privilege of the priesthood. And I think what Peter is emphasizing, I don't know if you'd say it's the primary thing he's emphasizing, but certainly is key and essential to what he wants us to understand in our priesthood. The priest of the Old Testament had the distinct privilege of being near to God. They were near to His presence. Even though the high priest could only enter into the Holy of Holies once a year, the priests were daily changing the showbread, keeping the oil and the lamp and the candles lit. They were daily at the bronze altar and in the front threshold of the temple of God. They were daily in the presence of God. They lived continually near the temple. They are the unique people that God drew near to Himself. If you'll remember, a few weeks ago we read Psalm 84. And there the psalmist is delighting, even expressing jealousy over the birds that get to make their place in the temple. Why? Because they get to be near to God. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house and to swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. And here the priesthood then had the great privilege of enjoying this nearness to God as their vocation, as in their calling within the nation of Israel. But the priesthood and the nation ultimately failed. The priesthood and the nation, as we know, ultimately failed. They failed to live up to their calling. They failed to live up to that to which God had established them. Listen to Hosea chapter 4. Remember, the role of the priest is for knowledge and to mediate the sacrifices. My people, he says, are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 
Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of God, I also will will forget your children. In other words, the priesthood failed ultimately, not because of God's design, but because of sin. They failed ultimately to be faithful to communicate the knowledge of God because of themselves were become repeatedly so corrupt, so full of sin, so, so perverting of God's purpose for their role that God eventually just wipes them out. And so both in its existence and in its failure, the priesthood of the Old Testament could never have been God's final design. It was a mere shadow of what was And so at the appearance of Christ, that old priesthood was done away with, and in Christ it was established permanently in his own priesthood. So listen to Hebrews chapter 7. Just listen, and then I'm going to go a little quicker. The former priest on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing, but Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Perfect forever. It says later, those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, that those things which God is picturing in them need a better sacrifice. And that is one that would come Through Christ, he says, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Because he has offered up his body once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all times, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. So the priesthood was done away with, but everything it pictured was fulfilled in Christ. But the essence of the priesthood did not come to an end. So in what way then are we a holy priesthood? What way are we the holy priesthood? Well, first, we are a holy priesthood in that we, by union with Christ and as his people called into fellowship with him, share in his priesthood, in his priesthood which he has purchased for us. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Revelation 1, he made us to be a kingdom Priest to his God and Father. Christ has made us to be a priest to his God. Revelation 5.10 You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. 
Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So Christ is our high priest and we, we enter God's presence through him. He mediates our relationship with God as both the offer and the offered sacrifice. And yet then, we then in him have a priesthood. But in what way then are we a holy priesthood? What way are we a holy priesthood? Let me give you a few. We've been chosen by God, just as the old covenant priest. We've been cleansed by sacrifice, as the old covenant priest needed to be. We've been brought near to God through Christ, and we mediate God's presence to the world. We are priests because we, as the people of God, then represent the knowledge of God to the world. Look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why? Or what is the essence of our priesthood? One, it is that you are God's chosen instruments to mediate his knowledge to the world. This is similar to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. We then, as the priesthood of God, have the great privilege and responsibility to be witnesses to the knowledge of God on the earth. Nobody will know about Christ. The church didn't exist. There would be no knowledge of God then on the earth. We have that great privilege. There would be no demonstration of the fruit of the work of Christ. There would be no proclamation of the word of Christ and of the gospel of Christ. So then we of the church have this holy, sanctified, set-apart priesthood to be to the world the knowledge or to be the conduits through which God reveals himself to the world. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy, actually. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says this. He says, I'm writing these things to you, he tells Timothy, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Listen, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. How do we as the church fulfill our priesthood? One is by ourselves accurately and faithfully representing the knowledge of God in this world. And that just is another reason why when the church skews and diminishes the idea of doctrine, that it's just this emotional sort of experience, is the, they relegate worship to this emotional kind of experience, it is to... The degree that they reject a deep understanding of the truth and the knowledge of God, to that degree there's a failure to be the priesthood of God on this earth. And it would really fall into the same condemnation that he gave to those in Hosea. You die for lack of knowledge. My people die for lack of knowledge. But inasmuch as we are faithful to the truth of God, we are faithful to that proclamation, then we are demonstrating the priesthood to which God has called us that he is accomplishing by building us as a spiritual house. Secondly, we have this priesthood in that we have the great privilege of nearness to God. Nearness to God. 
Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In Christ, we have access to God. Do you know, do you ever pray and ever think that when you pray or when you go to God, do you ever have the strong sense, I hope that you do, I'm sure each of us have at different times, it's stronger than others, but you have no inherent right to approach God. You have no inherent right to approach a holy God. If God were to have simply left us to ourselves, the only thing that we could expect from God then is condemnation. It is judgment. But in Christ, the great privilege that we have is to draw near to God, in the words of Hebrews, with a sincere heart and the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. In Christ, we come to God in faith and not with that sort of, uh, that sort of uh, fearful in the negative sense, that sort of uncertain timidity of whether he will accept us or not. We go to God with the great confidence in our priesthood that we have through Christ, who is our great high priest. We come with confidence. We come with assurance that God will accept us that he will not cast us away from his presence, not because we bring to God a life that is acceptable to him on its own, but because we come as those who are in Christ, who are covered under his sacrifice, who are beckoned by God to be brought near, or to come near to him. And the expression of our priesthood, then thirdly, is not only that we mediate the knowledge of God, we draw near to God in Christ, and we have this privileged access to his presence through Christ. But then he says, lastly, that we offer up spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices. Our priesthood is also that we might offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The idea of offer here is, the language is cultic. In other words, it, it, it harkens back to the priest who would offer up the sacrifices to God in the Old Testament. Here he's saying that we offer up sacrifices to God. What does that mean? What does that mean? How do we offer up sacrifices to God? What are sacrifices to God? Well, they are, first of all, sincere expressions of our faith. Sincere expressions of our faith. And that is actually consistent with the Old Testament sacrifices. God was never pleased with the sacrifice itself. He was never pleased with the mere externals of the, the animals and the blood and all of the external expressions of, their, of the covenant. God was always concerned, first and foremost, with the heart of his people. Always. David said in his psalm of repentance, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. As if God needed the blood of bulls and goats somehow to satisfy himself, to satisfy his justice against the sin of man. That's never what he was desiring. 
merely the externals, merely the outward expression. He says, you do not delight in these things. The sacrifices of God, David said, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And with that heart, that heart of faith, he says in verse 19, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering, and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar with the idea there, and they will be accepted, and they will be pleasing to you. So this is an expression of sincere, sincere faith. And they're necessary expressions. Necessary expressions. But what then does that look like for us? I want to finish this up, so let me just get to that. What does that look like, a spiritual sacrifice? In some, it could be explained in this way. Spiritual sacrifices are the fruit of regeneration and the indwelling ministry of the Spirit. They are offerings, as one defined them, offerings befitted a spiritual priesthood that is prompted by the Spirit and reflects His nature and essence. Essentially, they are everything that the Spirit Spirit produces in the life of the one whom he has given life. So everything in you that is a genuine expression of regeneration and spiritual life is a spiritual sacrifice. It is a spiritual sacrifice to God. It is every act of obedience in your life that flows out of a sincere love for Jesus Christ. There are some specific sacrifices he mentions... In Hebrews 13, 6, the sacrifices of God are when we meet the needs of others. He said, do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. When we meet the needs of one another, when we hear of a chairlift that needs to be put in someone's house and somebody gives up their weekend to go do that, that's a sacrifice of God. When somebody tells us they're moving out of town and they need help loading their truck, and you take your time and your Saturday to go over to their house and to load up this truck to serve them because they are your brother in Christ, that is a sacrifice of God. And that is something that pleases to Him. It's a fruit of the Spirit's work inasmuch as it's done for Christ's glory and out of love for the brethren. It's praise offered to God from a sincere heart. Again, in Hebrews, through him, then let us continue to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. When you show up on Sunday morning and when you sing praises to God, and it is a sincere expression of faith, it's not merely the routine that you go to because that's what you do, it is a sacrifice that God finds pleasing and that he accepts. It is a sacrifice of praise to his name by which he is glorified. Giving sacrificially to meet the needs of others, to serve the church and to serve the gospel, is a spiritual sacrifice. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, 17. He says this, Paul. He says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Here he's identifying the sacrifice actually As the faith of the believers, not his, not his work, but that of the believers. So their faith, their sincere expressions of faith in Christ are sacrifices by which God is pleased. 
He says again over in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, I've received everything in full. It's referring to their support of his ministry. I have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. When you give of time, when you give of resources to support the ministry of the gospel because you long to see the advancement of the truth of God, that is a sacrifice with which God is well pleased. But it goes even more than that. It is essentially your whole life offered up to God as a sacrifice of praise, as a sincere expression of worship. Listen to Romans. Romans chapter 12. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice, acceptable or pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That means then you're not conformed to this world, but you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. When you offer yourself to God, when you see your life, as redeemed and belonging to Christ, as a slave of Christ. And when you live out of that understanding and gratitude for your redemption to the service of Jesus Christ, that is a spiritual sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What then does that mean practically? Well, let me just give you a few and we're going to end here. What does that mean? That's, that's, that's the principle. What does it mean? It's a spiritual sacrifice to God when you battle the sin that remains in your heart and you put it to death by the Spirit of God. When you abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul and pursue excellent behavior among Gentiles who slander you, that is a spiritual sacrifice to God. When you diligently and sacrificially serve the body by exercising your gift... If you are not serving in the body in some way, in some manner, in some, with some expression of your ability and faith in Christ, then you are at that point denying the priesthood that defines you. Whoever speaks is to do so. He says, each one has received a gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whether you speak, whether you serve, whether you give, whether you exhort, whether you lead, whatever you teach, whatever you do, whether you pick up trash and you leave, whether you cut tree limbs off of trees in the beginning, whatever you do that is an expression of your giftedness and service to the church, it is a spiritual sacrifice that is accepted by God. When you submit to your boss for the glory of Christ, and you work with integrity and diligence, it is a sacrifice to God, a spiritual sacrifice, well-pleasing to Him. When you submit to a boss that is unreasonable, in verse 18, you find favor with God and you glorify Him. Wives, when you humbly submit to a husband who is disobedient to the Word, that you might glorify Christ and try to win them with your character you are offering to God a spiritual sacrifice of your life. When you are pursuing not outward beauty, but inward beauty of a contented heart in Christ, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, you are offering something to God that is precious in His sight as a spiritual sacrifice. 
Husbands, when you love your wives sacrificially and give them honor, serving them as a weak vessel, pursuing them in love and treasuring them and nourishing them as your own body, that is a spiritual sacrifice to God. Children, when you honor your mother and your father for Christ's sake and obey your parents and listen and trust their counsel, that is a spiritual sacrifice to God. When we suffer for the sake of righteousness and endure it patiently in this world, in fulfillment of God's promises or trusting in the fulfillment of God's promises, that is a spiritual sacrifice to God that is pleasing to Him. It finds grace and favor in His eyes. It's everything that you do that is an expression of the reality of Christ's life in you. And it is acceptable not because of the inherent value of your faith, but look at what he says. It's acceptable through Jesus Christ. It's acceptable through Jesus Christ. That's an amazing reality. You and I who are sinful by nature, although redeemed and having received the life of Christ, we who still have the principle of sin in us and know it, yet can offer to God in all of our imperfection, in all of the littleness of our faith, and all of the things that still, the sin that still taints us, we can offer to God something that is pleasing to Him. Why? Because it's not on the value of our faith, but it is on the value of His Son through whom He receives what we give. And so even when we stumble along the way and are so weak in our obedience, God accepts that as something that is pleasing to Him. That's amazing. That is amazing. But this is the goal and the purpose of our salvation. Coming to him as the living stones, which has been rejected by men, choice and precious in the sight of God. We as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house for the purpose to be a holy priesthood so that we may offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That defines who we are as the people of God. It also means that God accepts nothing that doesn't come through Jesus Christ. So anything that any of you may offer to God thinking that that makes you acceptable based on your work, it is rejected. It is not acceptable. But when you come through Christ, you have the confidence that He receives you and is even pleased with what you do for Him, for His glory. Let me pray. Father, thank You for... The grace that we have in Jesus Christ, thank you that though we are imperfect and though what we offer is so meager, so little compared to your glory, compared to your worth, that what we give to you pales in comparison to the sacrifice that was given on our behalf in the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And yet in him and because, O Lord, of your perfection, because of your glory, because of your sacrifice, because of your life, we as your children bring to you what is pleasing to you when we live by faith. When we respond, Holy Spirit, to your promptings within our heart towards righteousness. When we put to death the deeds of the flesh. When we grow in our knowledge of you. When we demonstrate an obedient love for the brethren. When we're faithful witnesses to you in this world. Then you are pleased. You are honored. When we serve one another with the giftedness with which you've given us, you are pleased and you are honored. Help us to live consistent with the great redemption that we have received and with the life of Christ that is in us. To this end, we pray. And Lord, if there's any here who don't know you, 
I ask that today would be the day of their salvation and that they would bow their knee to Christ and receive you today. And in this we pray. Amen. Uh, because of the time, we won't uh, finish singing our closing hymn.